Historically, surgeons were white men, and especially transplant surgeons, until Dr. Velma Scantleberry came along and surprised her first few patients. Quite a shock to him for me to be his surgeon, but to be a female surgeon, and his response was, and you're Black too. (laughs) I'm your host, Monica Fox, and that's the first Black female transplant surgeon in the country and author of Beyond Every Wall. Dr. Velma Scantleberry. Welcome to the Journey Continues podcast. In this episode, Dr. Scantleberry will share her amazing journey, how a little girl from Barbados became a world-renowned kidney transplant surgeon, and the challenges she faced along the way. Let's get right into it, Dr. Scantleberry. Tell me about that little girl, Velma, who grew up in Barbados. Growing up in Barbados, everyone knew me as Pat because that was the name my grandmother chose for me and was, I thought, my first name. So I was little Pat growing up with these aspirations of wanting to help others. I had an older sister who had passed away in England when I was around the age of eight. And my inquisitiveness wanted to know more about why she died, how she died, why was there not appropriate help for her. And so my desire to be a doctor stemmed from that. I wanted that ability to help others. And I excelled in the sciences and I also excelled in track. So that was not meant for me to uh, continue as I grew up because I moved to Brooklyn and continued my studies in Brooklyn. But from the beginning, when I was forced to write an essay, and in the Caribbean, most of our tests are around writing essays. So at the end of the year, my essay on my career was becoming a doctor, helping others, saving lives. And that was my aspiration uh, growing up. Wow, what an interesting beginning at such an early age to, to have that desire to become a doctor and grounded in such family roots. What influenced you to write a book to tell your story? I actually thought about writing a book when I turned 50. I thought of, wow, I'm a half a century year old and I've gone through so much. And I found that part of my joy came with education, teaching and mentoring and reaching back and speaking at high schools, elementary schools, and telling my story made me realize that I was being repetitious in what I had gone through. And it was such an inspiration to others. I remember a young kid who at a community center and I was, we were talking and he remarked, he says, I've never met a black doctor before. You know, this was about three or four years ago. And to me, that was amazing to think that here this kid who was age 10, growing up in the inner city and hadn't seen anyone that looked like me. Uh, And I thought that was important because we need to inspire our young kids. And I, you know, we all face obstacles. Our journeys are not going to be smooth. But at the end of it, we need to help our young people realize that we can we can overcome those barriers. We can help them overcome those barriers. We can show them that it is possible to dream and to fulfill that dream. And I, I thought 
it was very important for me to share my journey because I didn't have success at every step. There were times that I failed. There were times that I didn't pass exams. There were times when I didn't get accepted. But that's, despite that all, I persevered. And that's important that we share our stories and let others know that life may not be fair, but it's given the opportunities, given your determination and the support that's needed, we can help the young generation get to where they need to be. That is really great advice. I love that. And such an important life lesson that we that we all need to learn at every age. Um, speaking of the little boy who said he had never seen a Black doctor, have you experienced that with patients that you treat? Are they excited to see a doctor who looks like them? Yes. More recently, not at the beginning of my career. I, I have to say that I grew up, I went to medical school in New York at Columbia University and did my general surgery internship and residency at Harlem Hospital in New York City, where the majority of doctors are Black and the majority of patients are Black. And that was a great experience uh, because you had physicians who looked like you in a community that was the source of the patients. And then I moved on to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on the other side of Pennsylvania from New York. And that was a rude awakening for me because most of the patients I took care of as a transplant surgeon did not look like me. Uh, that acceptance was very difficult for many patients because I wasn't your typical doctor. Your typical surgeon was that tall white male, blonde perhaps, and that wasn't me. And so that acceptance was hard for many people who rejected my knowledge and capability and wanted another surgeon. But for those people who were black and brown, you saw the spark in their eye. They had that sense of relief that you're here. You, I'm going to look out for them. And that made a difference. That made a difference to me in, in my career because I encountered so many disparities when it came to patients of color, especially in kidney transplantation. And that's where I focus much of my, my life's work in terms of access to care, because it matters that the, your doctors look like you, your doctors that think, know about your culture and your upbringing and can advocate for you. Yes, all that really matters. I know that to be true. So, but you experienced the opposite in terms of, you know, early in your career uh, in Pittsburgh, treating mostly white patients. Were there any of them who did not want you to be their surgeon? There were many of them who did not want me to be their surgeon. Uh, I wasn't your typical what you expected when you, you walk into the room. I have to say that one of the things I recall was a family that outrightly objected to my performing this surgery as the senior surgeon introduced me to the family. And they wanted to have a private discussion. And he reluctantly asked me to leave. He says, please, you know, wait outside. I'll talk to you afterwards. And he had a discussion with them. And when he came out the room, I really felt that he was going to say, I'm sorry, uh, but what he said to me was he put his arm around my, sh around my shoulder and he was a Japanese surgeon. And he said, Velma, you do surgery today. 
<laughs> and that was just such a relief. He advocated for me. And that was my first experience of someone standing up for me to say, she's a good surgeon. She knows what she's doing and I can vouch for her. And I have to say, despite their reluctance, patients survived. We did well, eventually needed a second liver transplant, but we became very good friends with that family. That my capability, my confidence, my ability to explain the procedure and make them feel at ease and go through the complications afterwards, uh, we bonded and we remained friends for many, many years. Long after he passed on and after I had I'd left Pittsburgh, I was traveling through an airport, don't know which airport, uh, and these two young men stopped me and uh, wanted to say, you don't remember who we are. I said, no. We said, we are Mr. So-and-so's sons. I just wanted to tell you how grateful we are for taking care of our dad. And they were all, you know, yeah, full adults at that time. But it just goes to show you that pre- determination, I should say that for me, the determination and the the advocacy of my senior professor to stand up for what he knew was right and to dismiss this racial bias, which we would call it at that time, uh, and uh, let me shine was certainly something that was new to me. And it showed me that that's what we need to be when we face these issues. There were patients who, one remember this one young man who said to me as I was wheeling him to the OR, door. The nurses were females. The anesthesiologists were females. This was going to be an all-female team. And he grabbed my hand and he said, please don't kill me. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I said to him, no, I have no intentions of killing you today because I want to survive to see my daughter. I said, yep, you will see your daughter. I said, I have two, two daughters and I have no intention of going to jail for you. So, so yes, uh, you know, and again, he was someone who after the surgery was very grateful and uh, we remained good friends afterwards. So it's just that unknown. They don't know me. They see me and I am not your typical. He was someone who said to me, oh, you know, I've never really met a black person up close before. And I wanted to say, where are you from? Uh, He was from Erie, Pennsylvania. uh, And that was... um, quite a shock to him for me to be his surgeon, but to be a female surgeon and his response was, and you're black too. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, those things did happen. Uh, And I'm I'm glad that having my ability and I'm thankful to God for uh, allowing me to get through those experiences and the, yes, I can say there were times that I had very little self-esteem because after a while, that negativity and that rejection can get you down uh, and you can certainly lose your self-confidence, especially when there are people around you who are not there to reinforce that positivity. And it's so important to surround yourself with people who would uplift you uh, and celebrate your accomplishments and highlight the things that you've done uh, in the midst of all the negativity. Yes, that is very important. And I'm just so grateful to you for sharing um, those stories and and those remarkably uh, positive outcomes that came from some really difficult situations. Um, And I just wonder, how did you deal with the issues of feeling 
you know, the low self-esteem and you've, you've talked candidly about dealing with depression and things like that. How'd you deal with those things? I have to say I had to find a support mechanism. I did have to return to develop my faith in God as I, during my residency, I drifted away from the church, but I became very close. I learned to deepen my faith, to turn to God for support, to return to the church so I can have that fellowship uh, and support. And so many people reached out to me along the way, people I didn't know, even as a young mother, uh, and feeling overwhelmed, uh, and came to my aid to help and to be there. One lady showed up and she said, I'll come on Sundays to give you a break. You can go to the mall or have about three or four hours all to yourself so that you can rejuvenate, do whatever it is you want to do. And that was very important for me. At some point, I found from a magazine, a Yes, I Can article. And I remember cutting those words out, pasting them on my bathroom mirror so that each day I can see and reinforce that, yes, I can. So that that became my mantra because I knew that with God's help, yes, I can get through this. Yes, I can get over this. And uh, that was very helpful. Uh, My immediate family uh, was in New York and my husband's family was in North Carolina. And they all felt this Pittsburgh was very far away. (laughs) You mean you want me to come all the way to Pittsburgh? And so, yes, I did hit low bottom as far as my depression. Uh, And I have to say that definitely surrounding yourself with those who can listen to you, uh, my church friends, my sorority friends, uh, different professional organizations that I belong to, as well as my reaching back to encourage others. I think one of the things about mentoring is that it it rejuvenates you. You can, you know, once you instill that sense of hope uh, and determination in telling young people that, yeah, you can move forward. You may not succeed the first time. Your path may not be straight. There are often detours along the way, but be willing to take those detours because in the end, keep your mind and your vision focused on what it is you aim to do and you will get there. Uh, with that determination. And so that was also a source of encouragement for me. That's also so positive and such wonderful ways that you found to keep yourself going at, at difficult times in your life. And the positive affirmations are wonderful. I use those myself so I can I can really relate. And having a strong support group is really important. Of all your awards and accolades that you've received, which makes you the proudest? Being a mother makes me the proudest. It's a great, uh, for me, it's the ability to have uh, that gift to be able to give birth and have two wonderful daughters. I'm proud of my family and my husband who supported me along the way. Those are my, those are my greatest pride. Um, and my gift from God, I mean, the ability to be able to become a transplant surgeon um, is a phenomenal feat for me, you know, a little girl from Barbados and be gifted with such hands and an ability to uh, be a surgeon and a transplant surgeon and be able to give that gift of life to other people, to 
the whole process of seeing the spark in patients' eyes as they get better and feel better and somehow didn't realize how sick they were while they were waiting for an organ, but just getting by every day, hoping to receive that gift. That's, a, to me, those are things that I'm proud of. That is definitely something to be proud of. And I, your words there really touch me because I have experienced that, just the miracle of transplant and the difference that it made in my life personally um, is, is an amazing gift. And so I'm just so glad that you have that gift and you were able to give that to so many others over your career. In fact, over 2000 transplants you've done. And of those 2000 plus transplants you've conducted, which have been the most memorable, I know you've shared a couple uh, is there another that is very memorable to you? I think one of the things I remember, even as a resident uh, rotating on kidney transplant at Columbia University, and Dr. Mark Hardy was this transplant surgeon, and I was rotating on the service. And one of the young ladies who received the kidney transplant, I talked about in my book, uh, Miss Rhonda, and she received a, a kidney transplant. And as that transplant failed, I mean, I just participated, but I ended up closing her wound. And she thought that was the most neatest invisible scar she had ever had. And I thought, well, maybe I should become a plastic surgeon. But no, I continued to pursue surgery. And then she needed a second transplant. And throughout her career, we have remained friends. We did remain friends since she passed on. But one of the things that stayed with me was re her remarkable journey. And she was a social worker and a fundraiser. And between her first and second transplant, she remarked about how the onset of renal failure changed her mental ability. Uh, and the thought that as she became more and more uremic and with her end-stage kidney disease, her lack of ability to function normally, how foggy her brain was, how things that she did automatically had to be written down. Uh, and it was difficult to do her job in, ter in terms of thinking through the process and researching. Uh, and she had to create a timetable before she go to bed to or in order to function appropriately the next day. And I say that because we see so many patients with end-stage renal disease who've been on dialysis for many years. Uh, and we do not, as surgeons, consider the impact of renal failure and how it affects the brain. And oftentimes we say our patients are so forgetful and they're non-compliant and they can't do this and they wonder what's going on in their head, but we neglect to remember or have no way of establishing the cognitive decline or the effects of the toxicity of uremia on the brain. And she remarked about how wonderful it was to get another transplant and have that fog disappear, but it never really disappeared entirely because she had been on dialysis for so of many, many years. And that stayed with me throughout my career. And I always have been advocating or having my colleagues think about putting themselves in that patient's place and thinking about the fact that if you have 10% or less of kidney function and you are on dialysis, you're calling on to 
so much of those toxins and dialysis itself is not clean, really cleansing all your body because it's not as good as a kidney transplant. And what is that doing to your brain uh, and the effects of how the effects that that may play on that patient. And I think those are things that she was a prime example for me to think beyond just the transplant technical process and think about what end stage renal disease does to your body as a whole and advocating for patients to get off of dialysis and return, minimizing that dialysis time and the importance of finding a donor and getting transplanted. Mm, That's a very key point. Very key point. Thank you for that. You've said that one of your goals before retiring was to be sure that there were at least 10 other Black female transplant surgeon. How did you do? I have to say, as I was finishing my book, I was struggling. I said, I know there are 10 out there because I'm got to, I've got to include them in this book. Uh, and I delayed publishing my book because there was no way of finding these, all the names of the 10, but they were there. And by the time I got to retire, we are beyond 10. We're actually about 12 uh, with about two or three finishing their fellowship. So I have indeed, I am so proud of each and every one of them. And I feel like I at least have set the stage and create a path for others to know that this is possible. And they're all so excited to be transplant surgeons. Uh, They call me queen mother. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Of our black female, we call them our mocha transplant women's group. Uh, And uh, they're a a great bunch because we try to Zoom every month and keep in touch and figure out who's doing what and just talk, sister talk and complain about all the things we faced and uh, cheer each other on. That's awesome. I love that Mocha Docs. That's wonderful. (laughs) So I'll say like our um, vice president said, you were the first, but you won't be the last. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is truly amazing. So that's a great start, but we definitely, you know, there's a lot more work to do. And I know that you'll be uh, working, you know, continuing to inspire others to follow in your footsteps. Speaking of work as a transplant surgeon, you worked many hours and spent many hours on call, but you still found time to write a book and mentor others. How'd you find time to do that? I like to keep busy. It's very, (laughs) (laughs) I am always, my head is always rolling and thinking of things to do and ways to do things. I am in organizations, volunteer organizations, uh, and to me, that is so important to be able to give back. I've been blessed and there's nothing better than being able to be a blessing to others. And that is um, a key. That's what keeps me going is motivating others, uh, encouraging others, uh, being involved in preventive care. I'm working with a group of over 65 women uh, educating them on better health and better nutrition. And I'm providing lectures for them every day on Zoom. Thank goodness for Zoom. But it's so important that we become more knowledgeable. uh, And that's what keeps me going. Well, you kind of preempted my last question a little bit. (laughs) I was just going to ask, now that you've performed your last surgery, what's next? You just told me a little bit about what you're doing now, but what else is on your plate? 
Uh, on my plate, I'm continuing to remain involved. I'm reaching out to, to different organizations. Uh, I'm uh, presently a professor of surgery at Texas Christian University. Hopefully, we'll start working with the medical school class there in January as a, a physician coach uh, and for the medical school, giving some lectures on hypertension, kidney disease, and my area of expertise. I'm also working as a surgical consultant to some uh, surgical uh, care companies. And I'm also reaching out to see what I can do to help uh, my place of birth, Barbados, is moving towards organ donation re recovery, organ donor recovery. And so I want to be able to assist them uh, with whatever I can and getting them on that road, because right now they're just using living donors. And I think instituting deceased donation would be an opportunity to provide more kidneys for people on the island. So that's on my checklist. Wow. Wow. You've done so much and your plan is to do so much more. I am in awe. I am amazed. I am a fan and I am grateful to you for taking this time to talk with me uh, today and share your powerful story of being a transplant surgery, your powerful journey. Thank you for giving me this opportunity also. Kidney disease and the primary underlying issues affect Black Americans at a rate nearly four times higher than others. At NKFI, we are focused on improving the health and well-being of people at risk for or affected by kidney disease through prevention, education, and empowerment. We pledge to stand strong in solidarity with the Black community and to do our part to reduce the health disparities and move towards health equality. For more information of our work, visit nkfi.org. To read Dr. Scannelberry's book, Beyond Every Wall, and to learn more about her journey, visit bpscannelberrymd.com. At NKFI, prevention is a major part of our mission. That's why at the end of each episode, you will hear a nutrition tip. Here's Dr. Melissa Prest. Here's today's health tip about managing high blood pressure. High blood pressure, or hypertension, is one of the leading causes of chronic kidney disease. Blood pressure is the force of blood pushing against the walls of your blood vessels as your heart pumps blood around your body. Most people with high blood pressure do not have any symptoms. For this reason, it's often called a silent killer. The only way to find out if you have high blood pressure is to have it measured. Blood pressure is a measure between two numbers. The top number, called systolic pressure, is the pressure when your heart is beating. The bottom number, called diastolic pressure, is the pressure when your heart is resting between beats. A blood pressure of 120-80 is read as 120 over 80. Normal blood pressure in adults aged 18 or older is less than 120 over 80. In general, for adults 18 and older, blood pressure that stays at 140 over 90 or above is considered high. Making healthy lifestyle choices is an important part of treatment. It can help bring high blood pressure under control. This may include losing extra weight, eating meals with less fat and salt, limiting alcohol to no more than one to two drinks a day, and starting a regular exercise program approved by your healthcare provider. If you're a smoker, your healthcare provider will advise you to stop. Smoking increases your risk of complications such as heart attacks and strokes. Medicines may also be needed to get your blood pressure under control. 
There are many effective medicines for high blood pressure. Sometimes a combination of different medications may be needed. With today's health tip, I'm Melissa Prest, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. The Journey Continues is brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and sponsored by Donate Life Illinois. To learn more about kidney disease and living donation, visit www.nkfi.org. To register to become an eye, tissue, and organ donor, visit lifegoeson.com. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to and leave a review for The Journey Continues in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.